just sort of go through the random motions of marriage. We don't invest a whole lot in marriage. And then whenever we begin to have some, you know, some maintenance issues in our marriages, we're like, well, what's, what's the problem here? What's going on? And the problem is we haven't spent a whole lot of time investing in that. And so it's my hope today that we're going to look in, into our text, into our scripture, and find out some things that we can do in order to, to make sure that our marriages are finely tuned. And it's not anything that I'm going to be saying that helps you out. Believe me, the last thing you want is uh, some of my wisdom about marriage. Uh, you can ask my wife. What you want is what is God's wisdom about marriage. Now, what happens a lot of times is we go on our own expertise. And I've seen the expertise of human beings before. Uh, there's a so-called expert on a television show that I shall not name. Uh, because, and I know that y'all probably think the only thing I do is sit around and watch TV all day. I don't, just half the day. And uh, there's this one show, it's stupid people, uh, stupid things people do, and it was an alligator expert, and y'all might have seen this. He walks over, and he gets the alligator's mouth, and there's, he's at this little park, he opens up the alligator's mouth, and what does he do with his head? He puts it in the alligator's mouth, and he pulls it out. After he pulls it out, the crowd's like, ooh, isn't that neat? He says he's safe, and they clap, and he does it again. Next time he does it, he sticks his head in there, and the alligator's mouth goes like this. Oh, and it shuts, and the guy's head, and I'm watching this going, this is, this is awesome. Uh, you know, and uh, so his head's stuck in there. The guy's screaming, and so some of his friends run out there, and they're trying to pry open the alligator's mouth. And just for y'all to let you know, he does not, he does not die. They're able to sew his head back on. No, I'm kidding. They, he doesn't die. They get his, they get his mouth open, and he's got, I mean, he's got a nice tattoo of alligator teeth around his head. And what's, what's really interesting to me about this is that the people watching it are like horrified. You know, and they're, they're like going, oh, I can't believe that happened. And I'm sitting there watching going, you gotta be kidding me. I mean, you stick your head in the mouth of an alligator. I mean, it's a pretty good chance that the alligator is going to you know, try to bite your head off. Now, I tell that story because I believe that a lot of times in marriage, what many of us do is we, we spend time investing in a lot of different stuff, but not in our marriages. And then whenever, you know, whenever marriage goes on for a while, it's like we end up getting bit by the alligator in our marriage. Now, I'm not saying that marriage is evil because it's something that God instituted. I'm not saying that, that your spouse is always looking to bite you. But you know what? The, the, the fact is, whenever we are not investing and spending time and building up that marriage, the end result is it, it really should not be surprising to us when we see people in marriage struggle. And, and marriage is really an issue that has, it really has. It has, it has burdened, my, uh, burdened my heart uh, my life in, in our community for some time because there are so many people in the church, in our community, who feel like in marriage, the man, they've been bit and they're struggling. And so what we're going to do today is we're just going to look at our scripture and we're going to see Paul sharing with us some, some real practical application steps, secrets, that can lead to a long marriage. So some of you might say, well, you know what, I'm, I'm not married, and I, I don't plan on getting married. And these principles also apply to any kind of relationship that you have. Principles that you can apply to your life, secrets that you can apply to your life and discover 
that will bring rescue and healing into your, into your relationship. So if you have your Bible, you can look in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look in verse number 25 in just a few moments. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, if, if you have your Bible, I'd love for you to turn there. While you're turning there, I want you to know Paul was writing to the Ephesian church, which was made up basically of a lot of new Christians. And they needed guidance. And, and Paul is encouraging them basically right here. I told you before, the first three or four chapters of this book deal with theology. You know what theology is? As it's the study of God, uh, it's basically what we believe, what we say we believe. So the first several chapters of Ephesians deal with theology. The last several chapters deal with practice. Putting your theology into practice in your life. Now, I will tell you this all day long. I can stand up here and I, in my own life. I can tell you what the Bible says, but it will not mean anything. It will not demonstrate anything in your life or my life until we practice it. Now, in other areas of life, that makes sense to us. But a lot of times in Scripture, we just think, or with Christianity, we think, if I just know the stuff, I'm good. It's not the case. The case is not just to know what God wants to teach you, but to actually apply it to your life. And I believe because of that, when you begin to apply it, you begin to see change. Because God's word is true, it's eternal, it's lasting, and it will change your life. And it, will change, it can change your life also in your marriage. Now some of you might be saying, well obviously you don't know much about my marriage. Let me tell you something, God is bigger than your marriage. And the secrets that we have, the instruction that we have, from our text today is how we can have and develop a lasting marriage. So what's, what's the way we can do that? Well, first of all, the first secret is a commitment to a short-term memory. All right? You want a long, you want a long marriage, a healthy marriage? There's a commitment to a short-term memory. Y'all might know what I'm talking about here. Some of you guys going, you, you better believe I know what you're talking about. Uh, look at look in verse number 26. It says, "Be angry and do not sin." Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. One of the most damaging things that takes place in marriage is a long-term memory. Right? It can be really... Now, have y'all heard the phrase before, let's just bury the hatchet? Y'all know that one? Let's bury the hatchet. How many of you, and you, on this one you can raise your hand, how many of you can look back in, in your life and say, there have been times in my life with other people where I've buried the hatchet? How many of y'all? Buried the hatchet? Okay, there's some vindictive people in here. About eight people have buried the hatchet. All right, now, for those eight people who were feeling good about ourselves, the rest of y'all a bunch of heathens. Uh, we, we bury the hatchet, but the way we typically bury the hatchet is we bury the hatchet, but we leave the handle sticking out. And we leave that handle sticking out and say, I forgive you for that. But we leave the handle sticking out so that five years later, whenever that person's irritated us, we can pull up that past sin and we can bludgeon them to death with it. All right, now, I was going to say, have any of y'all experienced this before? But if your spouse is here, do not raise your hand. All right, so there's a lot of times whenever we, we bury the hatchet, but we hang on, we hang on to those past wrongs in our lives. Now, there's nothing, this is strange. Did you know that, that anger is a God-given emotion. It is something that, that it is not sinful to have anger in your life. Uh, Jesus became angry according to Scripture. Do, do you all remember, this is a little test for you, can you remember a time when Jesus became angry? Any example? 
Remember when he went to the temple area and they were performing business that was not a part of God's work in the temple area? What did Jesus do? He flipped over tables and he kicked everybody out. There are times when it's okay to be angry. There are times when there is such a thing as righteous indignation. Now, the question is, whenever my spouse has done me wrong, whenever they have hurt me, when they are in the wrong, what am I supposed to do? Well, I look at verse number 26. If you don't have this underlined, you need to underline. This is a good one to underline. It says, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. There are times when you can be justified in your anger, have righteous indignation. The key for us is to make sure that when we are angry, that we do not sin. Now, that's an easy one, isn't it? I mean, how in the world? Y'all, and speaking from personal experience, in my anger, here's what I've discovered about myself. When I've become angry, and there are they, I have been angry. When I become a I, very, I cannot, I, I cannot think of a time when I've just allowed anger to get a hold of me, and I have been filled with wisdom. You know, I mean, I have never become angry driving down the road at the big morons who all own cars except for me, and uh, and, and been angry and pulled up next to them and had a really. I thought it was a word of wisdom, but really something that was encouraging and uplifting. Um, I've noticed that, that whenever I have anger take control of me, that I, it is, I, I'm not an encourager, you know, in the midst of anger. And my guess is, is that you aren't either. And so the key for us is, in our anger, when we are righteously ang- have righteous indignation, we have to be careful not to sin because sin in the Bible is spoken of oftentimes as like a, a fire that has been kindled. I think it's a great description of anger. Uh, we, we still use the metaphors today. Uh, one of my favorites about when you're ticked off, yeah, that's one, yeah, I'm just ticked off. Or I was so angry, this is one of my favorite ones, my, and I've heard my sister say this. I'm so, I was so mad my hair was on fire. Now, you know that one? I, just, I, I am heated up. You know, I'm ready to just burst. I am angry. And guys, when we're like that, anger has the ability to burn like fire in your life and overtake it, to spread like a wildfire. If you don't have a short-term memory and you hang on to past wrongs, those past wrongs will wreak havoc in your life, and they will destroy you and your marriages. And I believe that many of us in our marriages, we can think of things that our spouses have done, whether it be intentionally or unintentionally, and we are not willing to let it go. And we have allowed that fire to burn through us, and it destroys. Oh, Lord, help us to let it go. Now, I'm not saying that there are not times when you don't have a right to be angry. Y'all, I know, I know things about you because I've talked to you and you shared with me things that have happened in your home and in relationships that are ungodly. And you have every reason to be angry. But the Bible says, in your anger, do not sin. 
Because whenever you allow anger to take root, it is destructive. And it's, it's destructive to you. It will consume your life. It will not enhance your relationships. And it will destroy. You know, whenever we allow anger to run rampant in our lives, boy, that, that there are some dumb things that happen for us. A guy named Ralph, he heard, he heard, he was trying to sleep, and he heard a noise on top of his roof, and he went outside. He's ticked off because he wants to sleep. It's a woodpecker. It's a true story. A woodpecker on top of his house, banging his head against an antenna. Okay, he's, he's, he, has the, he has the godly thought of, I'm going to kill that bird. And so he grabs a rock, he throws it at the bird, it sails over the woodpecker's head, and lands right in the middle of the windshield of his car. And it just shatters. Five o'clock in the morning, he's ticked off. He turns around, he's at his flower bed, and he's so mad, he turns around to kick the bricks in his flower bed, realizing afterwards that he still is only in a robe and has no shoes on. Y'all, uncontrolled, uncontrolled anger, it carries with it, it's just rewards. And it's never helpful, and it's never edifying and a blessing to you. So we, if we're going to have long marriages, Paul's saying, have a commitment to a short-term marriage. Uh, not a short-term marriage. Uh, I obviously was talking to my wife earlier. Have a commitment to a short-term memory. Oh, that's not good. That was, that was not God-inspired. Uh, there's, there's a, there is a biblical term for this, not my stupid comment there. Uh, the biblical term for a short-term memory is forgiveness. You, you, want a, you want a long marriage? Let me tell you where it begins. Forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32 is one of the verses we read today. Be kind and compassionate one to another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Ultimately, we are to have a commitment to a short-term memory because that is the type of memory that God has demonstrated with you and with me. You want to talk about somebody who has a right to be angry with us? Oh, it's God. But instead, God has reached out and he's offered forgiveness. Secret to a long-term, or a long-term marriage is a commitment to a short-term memory. It's forgiveness. Uh, another secret to a long, long-term marriage is a commitment to a selfless perspective. Uh, I think you can see this in verse 28. It's a little different, but it says the thief must no longer steal. Instead, he must do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. Now, this is dealing with the subject of stealing. So what does this have to do with marriage? Now, I do believe that there is a, this is a relationship issue. Whenever stealing is taking place, the person who is stealing, for whose benefit is he stealing in general? His own. When he goes to a bank and he robs a bank, what's he doing? He's trying to get more money for who? For himself, you know, unless he's Robin Hood. But he's stealing, and he's stealing for himself. When he takes property from somebody else, what does he want? He wants stuff for him. Stealing is totally selfish. He doesn't care about the person that's being stolen from because his focus is on himself. And I believe one thing that Paul is pointing out here is that our perspective needs to be different in our relationships. Instead of being selfish, looking to see what I can get for me, that's why he says, do not steal. He says, understand, you've been created by God in order to serve others, to be a blessing to other people. And that's true in marriage. 
One of the major problems that we have in marriage is we look at it from a very selfish perspective. And it's so easy to get married and to think, what is she or what is he going to do for me? Yeah, that's what, like, marriage, that's what marriage is all about. It's about me. Oh, it is not about you. Your marriage is not about what can you get, but it's how can you in your marriage demonstrate what God is like to you. Now, men, I think we're guiltier of, of selfishness, you know, in general more than, more than uh, the, the women. And, and here's why. It's very easy, and, I, and I, maybe it's just I'm speaking out of personal experience, so I, maybe I'm just casting it all on you as well. If I am, forgive me. So just, okay, I'm just talking about me. It's easy for me to you know, go to work and come home, and, and I, just, I can have this expectation that when I get home that, that Emily's going to make sure that everything's in order. You know, that there's going to be food on the table. And I, and I can make the, I, I don't cook. You know, so that's, that makes sense to me. Uh, there's going to be food on the table, the house is going to be clean, that uh, she's going to take care of the kids, that she's going to know what's going on in their life. She knows the doctors. Y'all, if it, if, if it ever came down to me taking care of our kids, oh, man, they're just going to die. Yes, I mean, they are. And so it's easy for me to be very selfish in that regard and so for me to, to come home and expect all these things so that I can come home and I can sit down in front of the television and watch ESPN. And then whenever the kids go to bed, I expect her to get them into bed. Yeah, I've matured. I'm talking about a long time ago. And so after all these things, and then, then I'd go in at, at the end of the day and think, why does she seem so distant? You know, why, why, is she, why is she not talking to me so much? I'll tell you why. Because I've been selfish. I haven't been willing to give and to share. You know, it's amazing what happens whenever we are willing to share and to give instead of having a selfless perspective. And I thought about it like this. I thought, you know, just in practical applications, young people, can, I, let me tell you something. If you are willing to give, there are great blessings that come with giving. If you wake up in the morning and just you want to totally shock your parents, make your bed in the morning without them asking. They would be stunned. Uh, husbands, if we take five minutes just to write a note to our wife and just say, I, I just want you to know that I appreciate you. Let me tell you something. You giving and not being self-centered and self-focused, I promise you, that will shock your life. And probably in a good way. Uh, Wives, have you paid attention to your husband when he tells you about the birdie he made on hole number eight and you act like you care? Oh, he's, he's going to be impressed with that. Now, the idea is Paul, Paul that the idea Paul's giving is, listen, in your life, he said, you, if you're going to be, uh, have a, a strong and lasting marriage, there has to be a selfless perspective where you're willing to give and not be looking to receive. Jesus said this in Acts 20.35. Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now that sounds good, doesn't it? That's churchy. It's more blessed to give than to receive. But have you ever put that into practice? If you have, have any of y'all experienced where giving is so much more of a blessing than receiving. It is. I, one of the first things I thought of is this the last couple of years, and just last uh, March, we had a group of guys and a couple of ladies who went down to Haiti. And when we were down there, we, we uh, were working on a dining hall for the children down in Haiti at the children's home. 
you know, it's going to be a blessing for them to be to be able to eat in a place like this. One of the one of the sister orphanages there, they eat outside. They have a tarp over their head. And this is a nice building. And so we we are you know I look at like we are being a blessing to them. But I guarantee you, if you were to talk to those guys and those ladies who went on that trip, they would say as they gave their time, their vacation time, as they gave their money to go, as they labored. And sweated down there. Let me tell you something. They would tell you that they were more blessed than the people they were serving. Why? Because there's some truth in the fact that it is more blessed to give than to receive. You want to see your marriage be touched and transformed? And have a selfless perspective. Because Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And you'll discover that for yourself. You want a a long-standing marriage, a commitment to a short-term memory, a commitment to a selfless perspective. And this is the last thing I want you to see. Last secret to a long-term marriage is a commitment to uplifting conversation. A commitment to uplifting conversation. These last three verses I'll read. It says, No rotten talk should come from your mouth, but only what's good for the building up of someone in need in order to give grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit who sealed you for the day of redemption. All bitterness, anger, and wrath, insult, and slander must be removed from you along with all wickedness. It's a big list. And then look what it says. It says, And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. It is amazing to me that one of the most damaging tools that there is in marriage is our mouths. One thing that will destroy people is the words that come out of our mouth. James 3.8 says, No man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. I'll look and see what Paul said. And as as you look at what Paul says, there's no doubt you can say there is great harm that can come out of the way that we speak to one another. And I have seen husbands and wives not necessarily using Rotten language, as our text says. That word rotten, it means putrid. I've seen husbands and wives, not not necessarily using curse words, but I've seen them tearing each other down. Y'all, I'm talking, I'm talking like in front of other people. Berating one another, having snide remarks. And very slowly over time, those words begin to erode and decimate a marriage. You say, how do you know that? Because let me tell you something, I've done it before. I've used language, I've talked and used words that have not built up but that have torn down. That's why Paul says no unwholesome word, no word should come out of your mouth that is not building, building people up. That word build, it literally means to build a house. If you want to build a house, you want to build a marriage that's going to stand, then you and I need to watch what we say. We need to use words that build people up, that encourage. Because you can't do if you keep if you keep screwing up the building equipment, it's hard to build something that's any good. And, and the equipment that we use to build up marriages—it's amazing to me. It's it's the way we speak. 
but when we treat one another through words. There's a study done by a bunch of doctors. They got 44 doctors together, split them up into two groups, gave them a hypothetical situation, said we want you to diagnose this hypothetical, you know, this patient who has this hypothetical disease. One group of 22, they came in, they gave every one of the doctors, they gave them a bag of candy. They said, we, we're just giving you this because we appreciate you, appreciate the work you're doing. Here's the situation. I'd like to see you come up with a diagnosis. It's a mystery illness. And uh, good luck. Y'all do some good work. They, le- they left the room. They went to the other group of doctors, the other 22. They said, here's the hypothetical situation. I'd like for y'all to work together to come up with the diagnos- uh, diagnosis. Thank you. They left. It's really interesting. What they discovered is they discovered the guys who got candy actually made a more accurate diagnosis than the doctors who did not receive candy. Now, you say, well, what's the conclusion there? Was it magic candy? Uh, Do you need to work with a sugar high? Here was their conclusion. That wasn't it. The conclusion was that words of encouragement are powerful. And the conclusion was that oftentimes... The one thing that moves a person from being mediocre to being great is a word of encouragement. Now, let me tell you something. One thing that could move your marriage from being just sort of a run-of-the-mill marriage and a marriage that is great is the way you speak to one another is a word of encouragement. Now, my, desi- my, my belief is that most of us have a desire to build marriages that last. And most of us desire for our marriages to be able to withstand the storms that many of you already know that life is going to throw your way. Because a lot of you have already experienced those things. So uh, what is the secret to have a marriage that is, that is long-standing? Paul shares just a few things with us. Now, those few things are very important. Short-term memory, that's forgiveness. The second thing is a commitment to a selfless perspective. It, y'all, we are here to serve others, not just ourselves. When Jesus said, I've come, I've, to, I've come to give my life as a ransom. He said, I did not come to serve or to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. And then finally, we are to make a commitment to uplifting conversation. Now, after looking at those things, here's the question. It's the only question I have every today that I want you to think about. What, what are you building? What, what kind of building materials are you using that are moving you towards having a long-standing marriage? A marriage that lasts. Now, for some of us who are believers might look at that list and say, you know, and there's some, there's some things I need to work on. And here, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd just like for you in just a few moments just to take the time to pray and say, God, I, I ask that you will work in my life to display these qualities in my marriage. And God, whenever I begin to move away from those things, you pray and you ask God, say, God, stab my conscience. That I might be reminded that I'm off track and begin to move back to the plan and intention you have for me and my spouse. Now, there are others of you. The fact of the matter is you, you don't have a foundation yet. You know, if you're going to build a house, build a marriage, you have to have a foundation on which that marriage is built. And the best foundation you can have is Jesus Christ. Having a commitment 
to Christ. And so I, I, want, I just want to encourage you to be willing to go to the Lord in prayer and just simply tell the Lord, say, Lord, I, I, want, I want you to be the foundation of my life. And I want to build and base my life off of what you teach us in this book. I want my life to follow these, these words, these principles that you give all throughout Scripture because, Jesus, I am trusting you. And, Lord, I understand that I need your forgiveness. And I want you to be my architect, to be my builder, to be my Lord and Savior, to forgive me. Mm-hmm.